Read the words, they barely mean anything to you. And you're trying to kind of uh, read it and find that meaning and you're struggling to. And you know they're supposed to contain hope, but for some reason they're not connecting. And you're in that struggle for joy. And it's strange for me because I'm physically fresh from a holiday, a, a, cu- a week and a half off with my family, but struggling with discouragement. And when we have these times, we can often wonder, where is the victory in this discouragement? Where, where is the victory? And what I mean is that as a Christian, we know that we're supposed to have that sense of, of victory, and, but I haven't felt it this week. And so much so that I said to Michelle on Friday night, when we went out together for a moment, and I just, I said, I just don't think I can preach this week, I just don't have anything to share. And, I, and for me, as a pastor, you sometimes feel like a fraud because I've got to tell other, thing, other people things that I can't really feel. And that can be quite destabilizing, to which she reminded me that God speaks through the frailty of men, and he speaks through the frailty of women. I wonder if you know this kind of struggle that you have at times, the struggle for victory over certain things in your life that come in and they deeply discourage you. And you wonder, where is the victory? And so as we come to Daniel 7 to 12, halfway through the book of Daniel, we're going to start a series in the second half called Facing Discouragement, focusing each week on the different causes of discouragement because there can be many different causes of discouragement. And what can we do about it when we ask ourselves, where is the victory? Where's the victory in my discouragement? And this is the same question as we've seen uh, happen uh, in the hearts of the people in exile. Where is the victory? And the reason is, is because there are people in exile and they're ripped away from their homes. And you imagine what this was like for them, uh, being the people of God and supposed to be dwelling in a land, Jerusalem, filled with milk and honey, and they're ripped away from their families and their homes by a pagan nation uh, that laughs in their face and desecrates their valuable things and their things that point to God. This wasn't how it was supposed to be for the people of God, and I wonder if that is kind of an underlying sentiment in your life, that kind of this underlying narrative of your life is this, this wasn't how it was supposed to be. As you look at your life, there's an underlying narrative that says that. This wasn't how it's supposed to be. I had a vision of my life that looked different to the way that it is playing out now. And so in chapters 7 to 12, we kind of see this really marked different in the style and the tempo and the kind of focus of the text. We've seen from chapter 1 to 6, there's like a history of Daniel where you see all these mini stories of him. You see a God who presides over it all, but you see the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends who kind of respond to God's sovereignty with faithfulness. And so we've kind of focused the series on culture and how we actually can influence culture uh, by the way that we stand for God. But in 7 to 12, it's different. Everything's different. Uh, Daniel has four dreams. And so 7 to 12 is marked by four dreams. One starts in chapter 7. A second one starts in chapter 8. A third one starts in chapter 9. And the fourth one is from chapters 10 to 12. Four dreams. And it's interesting because the, uh, the interpreter of the dreams becomes the dreamer. 
So we've seen in chapters 1 to 6 that Daniel is used in this function of interpreting dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. And he's, he's sort of seen as the elite one over all the sorcerers and the, the enchanters who are unable to interpret the dream. And Daniel is the interpreter. But now in 7 to 12, the interpreter becomes the dreamer. And this doesn't advance any more history. There's no more history advanced in in the book. It actually rewinds a little bit. And so these four dreams happen just between chapters 4 and 5. The repentance and the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar and that gap between the rise of Belshazzar, King Belshazzar, that kind of immoral king who was wiped out in the middle of a banquet. And so uh, his life ended because he did not repent. You sort of had those contrasts between those two kings. And so there's a rewind, dreams that happen in the period beginning with the Medo-Persian Empire. And these dreams, they take us to the weird and the freakish. They aren't kind of your typical morning devotional material. Uh, Their prophetic nature means that they actually contain information that is foretold, that hasn't happened yet, but is actually uh, telling the future before it happens. And the apocalyptic nature of it, or means the revelation, or which means the revelation or to unveil, uh, was used commonly in literature to capture imagination. It was used to also capture attention. And so, what we're going to see in chapter seven today, and all throughout the rest of it, is kind of symbols and imagery. But the thing we have to remember about symbols and imagery is that pictures always point to a reality. So these things aren't just kind of in a vacuum on themselves. They are, they are pictures, but they point to a reality. And so Daniel is seeing pictures that point to this reality, and the first reality he sees is that victory is in the hand of the empires. Just take out your Bible and turn to chapter 7 if you don't have it open, Daniel chapter 7, and it will be helpful for you to follow along this morning. Uh, what we see is that The first part of this reality is that victory lies in the hands of the empires. And so verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, King Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Verse 2, Daniel declared... I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So you can imagine this vast sea, and the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, and west, are stirring up. Note the source of where those winds are coming from, that they're actually coming from heaven, and so God is actually involved in the stirring up of the sea. And so you imagine this sea stirring up, and out of this sea comes four beasts, verse 3. And four great beasts come up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, don't get spooked by the imagery. Remember, pictures point to a reality. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And so here you have this strange-looking monster, a lion, the king of the jungle, but this lion not only is the fiercest of animals, it has wings on it. And basically what you have here is this description of of one that stands on two feet 
uh, like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And so there's this kind of imagery of a beast that then becomes a man. And what we see here is that this is a clear reference to Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember in chapter 4, in Daniel's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's repentance, that in Nebuchadnezzar's um, stand against God, because he stood against him and said, behold, this is my kingdom which I have made with, for my glory, he is brought down low. And he becomes beast-like in nature. And he's described as having fingernails like a bird. And and so we see here that what this is being referenced to is Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. But also, we also see this through the imagery of the ancient world, through leading up to the Ishtar Gate, leading into Babylon, was pictures of lions with wings. And so this clearly signifies uh, the nation of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. What we know in history is that what came after Babylon was the empire of Medo-Persia. And Medo-Persia under King Darius overthrew uh, Babylon and he began to reign. Uh, And what we see here is two people groups brought together, Medea and Persia, Medo-Persia. And one of those uh, nations, Media, Media, was considered a more passive nation, and Persia was considered the aggressor, which is why commentators believe you've got this idea of a bear that's sort of lopsided, but has three ribs in its mouth, and people commonly commentate this as uh, three nations that Medo-Persia conquered, Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. And so you have this image, these successive kingdoms uh, where they are, um, they are conquering nations. Uh, verse 6, after this, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four he- heads and dominion was given to it. Now what you're seeing here is uh, uh, the, the beasts are getting uglier. The beasts are getting more fierce. And so here we have a leopard which has four wings and four heads. Now, what we see happen in history is the, the after Medo-Persia was the, um, the nation of Greece under Alexander the Great. And the image here of the leopard is of one of the fastest animals. And what we see is that Alexander the Great was one who conquered the world in rapid period of time. He conquered most of the known world in under 12 years. Uh, and by the time he was 33, he died when he was 33, uh, trying to conquer or rebuild the nation of Babylon, which God said in Jeremiah that would never happen, that that land would lay desolate. Uh, it's interesting that even in the 80s, Saddam Hussein tried to uh, rebuild the nation of Babylon and uh, an army, a world army of 500,000 people in Operation Desert Storm, if you've ever seen de- documentaries on that, raised up and actually stopped Saddam Hussein from rebuilding Babylon. So we actually see here this kind of uh, reality that Babylon, as it was known in the ancient world, a kind of empire that ruled the nation, will not be rebuilt. It will lie in desolate waste and despair. And so here we see Greece, this this rising of of Alexander the Great. um, And then uh, this Alexander the Great had, uh, after he died, his, uh, his kingdom was divided up between four generals, and so commentators believe that the four heads of this beast uh, describe the, the four generals that took over these, the, the parts of, um, of Alexander the Great's kingdom. But then in verse 7, it kind of changes, uh, and we see something 
that's supposed to be more terrifying than the others. Verse 7, After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And so this empire is commonly understood as the empire of Rome. Now, Rome was the, you know, the, the nation that kind of, um, that overtook the world and overran the world more than any other world empire that we've ever seen. And its reign ran all the way to 476 until you had rebels come in and fully disband the Roman Empire. But what we see is that the Roman Empire is kind of, uh, it, the effects of it and the, we still experience today uh, as much of it's what, was, what kind of rose up in the Roman Empire is still experienced in Western nations uh, today. But also what we see here is, um, is ten horns. And these represent ten kings that would come out of this Roman Empire. And then there's a little horn. Another, an eleventh horn, a little horn that's described. And Daniel says in verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And so here, what you have is you have a Roman Empire with ten kings that are supposed to come out of this empire, and then a little horn, which is... uh, described as a man as having the eyes of a man who will rise up out of this empire and, um, and will speak great things, is described as speaking great things. What we know uh, as you study through the rest of the Bible, as you study through the New Testament, and in particular Revelation, is that this is describing a figure called the Antichrist, someone who will rise up in the last days and deceive many and speak a many great things, things that are grandiose and boastful and kind of accepted by many and it will deceive many into believing that he in fact is the saviour of the world because he will put himself in the place of God. Now, this is kind of, there's many different interpretations of the ordering of how you see uh, these things. And so some people interpret these, this whole scenario as figurative, that this is just the idea between the forces of good and evil and that God's going to win. Some people believe it as a historical, so that throughout the course of history from, uh, from, from Daniel 7 until now, kings have been raised up throughout uh, history, and these are the ten kings that are going to come out of the Roman Empire. And so, people uh, that believe this view, they search for th- kind of who those kings have been in history who are being raised up out of the Roman Empire. And then, some also believe that this is all future. That what is going to happen is that Rome, as was known uh, back in those early times as a, as a kind of unified nation, is actually going to be revived in the last days. So the Roman Empire will be revived and then out of that time will come the Antichrist. So there's different views on how, uh, on how this is considered. But for the first readers, the point was very clear. Daniel saw that for a very long time, victory would lie in the hands of successive empires of the earth. And, and this, is the, this is the main point. No matter kind of what you believe and what your hermeneutic is and ha- how you kind of uh, divide these things, this was the point to the first readers. Successive empires would can hold the victory. And, and these empires would go from bad to worse, thriving on the oppression of the weak, on the prospering of the wicked, a dog-eat-dog world filled with violence and sexual depravity, 
and laying claim to authority, while many will suffer at the hands of it. And they'll wonder, where is the victory? You see, what is the cause of discouragement so often in our time is that victory seems to lie in the hands of empires. And what is painted for Daniel is that real world, the harsh realities of life that bring discouragement when illness strikes, the battle of sin and shame that we face, the daily struggle with the mundane and the injustices that happen in our world, even things just like change in your life. Things, people don't like change, we struggle with change and it can bring uh, discouragement in our life. And discouragement, it seems, can be deadly. I read this recently from a pastor who received an email uh, from a woman and she wrote this, For about 23 or more years, I genuinely thought I was a Christian. I thought I wanted God, I thought I believed in God and I thought I needed God. And after a 20-year battle with religious OCD, in which I used the Bible to help me deal with my discouragement and questions, I came to the end of the road. After the last four years, I do not believe. It has been a devastating loss to me as I built my whole life and world around what I genuinely thought I believed, or maybe what I wanted to believe. My trouble was that I see how sinful people seem to be living perfectly happy lives without God, something I mistakenly believed for a long time that no one was able to do. See, what caused her to pivot away from God? She was discouraged by the fact that sinful people seemed to have it good, while her effort to be religious didn't seem to ever pay off. I wonder if you ever feel like that. And so in her discouragement, she turned to a different life, a world of plastic promises. I wonder when you grow discouraged in your life, in this world that seems to be run and the victory seems to be in the hands of the empires, where do you turn? Where do you turn when you are in the battle of discouragement? For her, it was religious OCD. It was kind of this obsessive-compulsive way of living out a religious life that would somehow uh, kind of medicate her um, discouragement. As Christians, we can seek to medicate our discouragement with the plastic promises of the empire. It's amazing how we do this with the same vices, we seek the same vices and the promises of the empire in which we are fed uh, from a world that, um, that is actually causing us to draw uh, into this reality that's not real. A kind of hyper-reality, it's the perfect life that we see on TV. My uh, example of this is just about a month ago, I was watching the AFL Brownlow Medal. It's the, the medal which is awarded to the best player in the AFL for the season. And I remember watching this event, this young 23-year-old guy who just signed an $8 million uh, contract to play the game that he loves. And he was just about to walk up to the, to the stage to accept the highest, um, highest medal, the highest honour in a game that I love. And, and, uh, and the whole um, narrative of that scene was how this guy... Uh, who has got all this kind of stuff that you could ever want, was about to go off after the football season to Las Vegas with friends and just live it up and just party it up. And everyone just thought that was a really big joke and that this was going to be hilarious that this guy... And, and, you know, as I was watching this on TV 
uh, I started to stare into his life and wonder what it was like. Or just to kind of wonder how good it actually would be to have a million-dollar bank account and to kind of have that sense of freedom that you can just go off and experience the world and do what you want. And in that moment, I realized that I was self-medicating. I was medicating myself with the plastic promises of the world, living off the promises of the empire. And this is exactly what led uh, Israel to exile in the first place. It was them believing in the plastic promises of empires, uh, the lure of false gods and what they could offer them, intermarrying, living outside of God's will and replacing it with the promises of the empire. And, you know, so often in my life and in our life, we get discouraged when victory seems out of reach or it's unrealistic because victory seems to lie elsewhere. It seems to lie in a world where people have it good. And I have found in my life that what deepens my discouragement is when I turn to medicate myself on plastic promises. I wonder if you ever do this. You envy the world's freedom, a sense of perceived freedom that the world has. And it takes your mind to a sense of escapism, like I wish I could just go here and go there like the world seems to be able to do. But for me, in my Christian little world, my religious world that I'm bound and I don't have the freedom that the world seems to have. Secondly, we kind of envy the entertainment of the world, the exciting things that kind of doesn't have any kind of moral bounds. We envy the prosperity. We look at people's prosperity and even of people who seem to be less deserving than we do and we envy that. We look at the ease of the world how people seem to be able to get away with things and still live a life of no worries. And perhaps, finally, we envy depravity. Sometimes we look upon the joy and the pleasure that the people, people of this world and this age are able to enjoy and we are just like them in a sense as fallen sinners and we envy the depravity, the things that people uh, enjoy without any conscience. The empire holds out a vision of the world to us that is a kind of hyper-reality. The hyper-reality of this earthly empire is showing you people who are just like you, but better. And Mark Sayers writes this, he says, it's the woman on the ad who uses the same shampoo as we do, but is more attractive. The family the same size as ours, but looks happier and more satisfied. The guy who uses the same deodorant but manages to pick up girls who look like supermodels. The hyper-reality of this earthly empire shows you people who are just like you, but better. And how can our everyday realities compete with the promises of a hyper-reality like that? The truth is that they can't. Many of us are discouraged because we're living on plastic promises and this happens in the most subtle ways where we line up our, our idea of what is success and happiness by what we're being fed and we pursue this and we pursue that until reality hits and discouragement follows because you realize that the empire is something that you can never truly possess you can never actually grasp it it's always just out of your reach and it spits you out you know, oftentimes I, I just find myself constantly reading the news. I don't know, 
Sometimes, you know, you might just kind of be bored or you're discouraged or something like that. You reach for your phone, you open up the news app and you just start reading news. And, and, you know, just even this week, like the start of this week, I kind of have this app, news.com.au, it's the News Corp site, uh, own site. And this is the top articles that as I just scrolled down and looked at their headlines. First one, she hates him. Soph and Stu split, all right? Just talking about the bachelorette. Number two, my surrogate stole my son. Number three, the biggest myth about Donald Trump. Number four, strippers on strike over equality. Number five, the truth about the block. Number six, friends' ugly responses to IVF. Number seven, inside Barcelona's sex doll brothel. Number eight, proof that you shouldn't take selfies. And I just had to switch off from reading this week. Trashy articles selling me a version of reality that doesn't mean anything. Selling you ideas and worldviews of a kind of life that you can never really have, and if you did, you'd be disappointed. I just decided I had to switch off what pulls you down into a hyper-reality that means nothing. Where do you go? Where do you go when you're discouraged? How do you medicate? How do you medicate yourself? For some of you, it might be alcohol. You just kind of think that it might numb the pain a little bit by just kind of indulging in alcohol. Or for some of you, it's pornography or throwing yourself into more work or just burying yourself in social media or whatever it is that the world is throwing your way, asking you to kind of believe this, receive this version of the world, of this version of reality. You know, something else has to break in to this. Something else has to feed us in the midst of discouragement. Something has to change from medicating discouragement with a hyper-reality of the empire. What has to change? We see here that something breaks into Daniel's dream. And you see it from verse 9. As I looked... Thrones were placed. You see, immediately what we see is that something has to break into your world. Reality has to break into your world. And what this is describing here is a throne which signals complete authority. That there is a a throne that is placed in God's reality, that He is seated upon, and that He rules and reigns over the whole world, and it says, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure like wool. This term, the Ancient of Days, describes God the Father, who from the beginning of time has created the world and looked upon the world and saw that it was good, and has looked upon man's rejection of him, and has looked upon the decline of history of people turned from him and and walked away from him and opted for the the hyper-reality world rather than God's reality. This is a God who is not just distant from history but is inside of history and will complete history. He is the Ancient of Days. And what is being said here is that while the empires may have their day, while victory may lie in the hands of empires for a day, he is the Ancient of Days. He is the Alpha and the, the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. This is God's reality. You know what? This is what has to break into your world. 
This is what has to actually break into your hyper-reality, is God's reality. There's a throne. He's sovereign over it. He has named the Ancient of Days. He is in authority. We see he's described as having clothing that is white as snow. You know what? In God's reality, things are pure. God is pure. He is the definition of purity. His hair of his head was like pure wool. This isn't like the image that we so often see on the TV of God, someone like Gandalf or something like that. But this is signaling a God who is all-wise. This is God's reality, that He is all-wise. He knows the right paths that we should take. He is willing and desirous to lead us down the paths that He wants for us. We also see His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before Him. God is a God of judgment. This is God's reality. You know, so often we might envy this life of plastic promises where people seem to be able to, with ease, flip from this to that. And yet God's reality is that every person is accountable for their deeds. Every person, it says, he will stand before God in judgment and the books, it says, were opened. This is a vision of the future where God will be seated on his throne and every person will stand before him and the books will be opened. This is God's reality. How do you overcome discouragement? You don't seek it in the hyper-reality of this world. You actually walk outside, you feel the sun on your back, you realize that God made it. You look around, you see the world actually exists for a purpose and you realize that there is something other than a hyper-reality. It's God's reality. And He is on the throne and He is authoring history. And He wants people to recognize that this is what breaks into discouragement, is when you see God's reality and you live in the promises of God's reality and who He is. You see here the result of all of this in verse 11. No, sorry, verse 10. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. Thousands, thousands served him and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. This is a picture of the future where people who have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus stand before God and they worship. This means they find satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction in him. See, often we, as we face and self-medicate with the plastic promises of this world, we think, well, how could God ever satisfy me? The point is that He does. He is all-satisfying and He will satisfy a people who acknowledge Him for eternity. God's reality has to break into your discouragement. It has to break into a hyper-reality. You have to see God's perspective This changes your world as I kind of discovered this very slowly and gradually and painstakingly this week that what it means is when you get in your car and you drive off and you look around at what's happening, you realise that God is in control of it all and he's over it all and he's working in it all. It's not just this mundane existence. God's reality has real promises. And I want you to see that when we live on plastic promises, we are 
in a way serving the system of this age and we're actually allowing this age to have power over us. We're actually allowing this age to control us. And, and as we look to it and medicate on it, we find ourselves discouraged by it. But I want you to look here in verse 11 and verse 12. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. This is the Antichrist in the future that will speak out blasphemous things about God. And as I looked, the beast was killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. I'm going to talk about that more next week. But what do we see here? We see that the beast is killed, that the power of the empires is actually removed, that it's taken away. And so the more that we actually sow and hold on to and claim the plastic promises of the world, we see how we're actually in a futile exercise because the power of this empire is going to be sucked out. The life is going to be sucked out. It's going to be emptied of its power. It's going to be destroyed. And this is the promise that was to these struggling exiles, that the empire would be drained of all its power and it would be replaced with the promise of a Messiah. Look in verse 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What we're seeing here in verse 11 sorry, in verse 12, is that power is taken away. The empire is emptied. And then what you see here in verse 13 and 14 is that dominion is given. And dominion is given to the Son of Man. This was a term that Jesus used of himself when he stood before the high priest Caiaphas who asked him, are you the Lord, are you the Christ? And he described himself as the Son man and you will see him coming on the clouds. The term clouds, whenever it was used in the Old Testament, whenever it's seen in the Old Testament, it was always an appearance of God the Most High. And so what Jesus is claiming here, he's the Son of Man, he's fully God. And he's someone who's breaking into reality. He's someone breaking into the world, offering hope and peace and love and joy in discouragement to struggling exiles, to people who are in the battle of despair to people who have been broken by sin, who have been broken by hurt, who are stuck in their addictions and stuck in finding satisfaction in things other than the true source and the true hope. And I, I just wonder if there's any of you in here this morning who are not living in that grip of reality, that there is a Christ, there is a Son of Man who has broken in and He offers you hope that this morning and today you might bow the knee to Him, that you might find your satisfaction in Him and your identity in Him and your worth in Him and find your joy in Him. This is why He came. He came to broke in, break into realities, to false realities that this world has set up. How do you fight for joy and discouragement? 
You know, many people fight discouragement with their own morality and their righteousness. Many people look to their own faith. That's why I suspect this lady who pointed to her religious OCD, as she wrote in this email, never found an answer. It only deepens the discouragement to the point of giving up on God. Well, some of you be familiar with John Bunyan. He was the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and it's the book that kind of sold more copies in English than any other book besides the Bible. And he was a powerful preacher, but he was always, not always so filled with gospel power. And in his 20s, he struggled greatly. He wrote, my heart was exceedingly hard. If I would have given a thousand pounds for a tear, I could not shed one. Oh, the darkness of man's heart. Oh, no one knows the terrors of those days but myself. But then came the decisive moment of triumph. One day as I was passing in a field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say was my righteousness. So that whatever I, wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For he was right before him. I also say, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, not yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. And so I went home rejoicing in the grace and love of God. You know, what does it mean that Christ here in this scene is crowned with glory and power and dominion? This is this scene, it's a coronation scene. It's where the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days and he is given dominion, he is given authority, he is crowned the King. What this means for you is that God has accepted the work of the Son of Man. And now as a Christian, you to fight discouragement from a place of victory over sin and death. Not from a place of searching for victory, but a victory that Christ has won on your behalf. Verse 15, as I close here, we see that Daniel, having seen these dreams of the future... My spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. And I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Where did the angel want Daniel to look? What is the whole emphasis of this passage? It's not to look at the empire. It's not to stare at the empire. It's not to look at the monsters. The angel wants him to look at the victory. The angel wants him to look at what he possesses in Christ and what struggling exiles will possess in Christ. I want to encourage you, I know from my own life, much of my time when you struggle in discouragement, 
is you, you're looking at the monsters, you're looking at the empires, you're looking within yourself, you're staring at the problem and the answer to fighting discouragement tomorrow morning when you wake up is to stare at the victory, is to stare at Christ, is to see what you possess in Christ, that it's a kingdom that you'll possess forever, forever and ever. The most freeing thing I experienced this week was when grace was ministered to me uh, by my wife and she said to me, you aren't in full-time ministry because you've never done a thing wrong. You're in it because even though you have, God has made you right through the Son of Man, through Christ. Hope in Him, serve through Him, lift your eyes to Him. Don't stare at your problems, stare at the victory that the Son of Man has won on your behalf. I want to encourage you this week to look into Christ more deeply, to stare into His promises. In fact, this week I think I'm going to post on the notice board every day a promise of Christ over your life, a victorious promise of Christ in your life so that you can see every day how Christ actually has broken into your reality and how you can hold on to Him every day, His promises every day, to lift your soul, to lift your spirit, so that you might be somebody who experiences the joy of your salvation. And so today, we've been talking about how we can medicate ourselves on plastic promises. And I want you to see the promise of God that you're going to possess a kingdom forever. You can never possess the empire, but you can possess the kingdom. And next week, we're going to look at discouragement that happens through spiritual warfare and how Satan can actually... uh, in this age, can actually attack us and, uh, and cause us to be down. And so I'd love you to come out next week as we continue to study. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for, um, Lord, this dream that reveals so much of uh, a hopeful future for us. And I, I do pray for each person, Lord, today, that, uh, Lord, that future reality... Lord, of a kingdom that you uh, rule and reign over will break into our present and current experiences in our day-to-day. Lord, I, I pray that we might find joy and peace and hope, Lord, from these truths, Lord, that we don't live in a world that is just hurtling towards uh, uh, despair, Lord, but for the Christian, for the one who has received Christ and put their hope in him and faith in him, we receive Uh, much hope and so Lord I I do just pray for every person I know these experiences are real for people Lord and uh, people can be uh, grow quite weary and quite uh, down in these times Lord I just pray that you'd use the community of your people uh, today Lord and as we study these things to um, to come alongside one another and to uh, uh, to just help one another uh, walk through uh, the journey of faith um, that at at times is winding and difficult. Lord, I just pray that uh, we'd be a blessing to one another, that we'd look to you, that we claim your promises today. In 